Yeah. The Bar Podcast. Uh, Biblical uh, reform, let's uh, go. Yeah. Uh, Welcome to the bar. Come on and pull up a seat. And open up your Bible. What a wonderful feast. The living bread. And we're discussing what it means for the streets. The inner cities and the burbs and every person we meet. This where we challenge worldviews that we hear from world news. In light of the scripture, yo, we are here to serve you. We're your source for resources to help you on your way as you battle mean forces. Yo, this is for the people who can see the importance of sound theology and the scripture that support it. Yeah, this is for the truth lovers, biblically reforming, preaching Christ to the nations. Yeah, the nations. Welcome to the modern reformation. Yeah. Welcome everybody to the bar. It's your guest host David Knight from Exposit the Word, standing in for Dwayne. Different hosts, same show, insane top top guests so let's get to it because i am super excited to be coming through your speakers your earbuds wherever you are listening to the bar and as always we are grateful that you are listening and we love to start off the show by thanking you the listeners for tuning in and supporting the show and just like we do every tuesday we bring you another awesome guest and this one is no different Hello and welcome, Mark Johnston. It's great to be here. Thanks very much for having me on your your podcast. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Thank you. So looking forward to it. Mark, tell us everything that we need to know about you in 60 seconds. Oh, uh, Irish born and bred, um, but moved around many different places over the years. Uh, uh, but I've never never lost sight of my roots. Um, and, and home has always been back here on the Emerald Isle. Um, but have have been in the ministry for almost forty years. Served five different churches around the world, uh, in Ireland, in London, in Philadelphia, Cardiff, and now now back in Ireland again. Uh, yes. so, uh, a Celt with eclectic tastes and eclectic experiences. <laughs> yeah. And you're a trustee for two of the most helpful sound biblical ministries of our time, both Banner of Truth and Ligonier. Just briefly introduce both to us for any that are not familiar with them, Mark. Yeah, Banner of Truth's been around for almost 70 years, um, and and it kind of started by accident back in the late 1950s. Uh, People like Jim Packer, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and Ian Murray, who was his associate in Westminster Chapel at that time, had, had had rediscovered the Puritan and, and Reformation literature um, that had very much gone out of fashion with the rise of liberalism in the, the early part of the, the 20th century. Um, so so secondhand bookshops were just awash with these old books. Uh, and uh, as they began to realise what these books contained and, and the kind of theology they represented, um, it, they, they realised they'd stumbled upon a, a lost treasure. Uh, so they, Ian Murray and, and some friends and associates, uh, they, they never set out to start a publishing company. Um, they were young men, they were fired with a vision, um, and, and all they wanted to do was just to alert the wider Christian public to, to this rich resource. Um, so, so their intention was to write a one, to, to produce a one-off magazine um, and, and just put it out. Um, so this was the precursor of what became the Banner of Truth magazine um, and, and it was just so well received, and there were so many responses saying, "Do this again," um, that it became a monthly magazine, uh, which has continued ever since. Um, but then, obviously, with the, the magazine was one thing, but people wanted uh, wanted access to these materials, and and you know, going to a secondhand bookshop was pretty hit or miss as to what you could get. Um, so they they started to to reprint um, Puritan materials. Um, and Reformation materials, and and again, you, you know, they they never set out to be successful. All they wanted to do was provide a good resource for the church, um, and and it's it just it just began to grow like topsy. Um, you know, they, they didn't they didn't have a you know your full on advertising campaign. The, the books just sold word of mouth. And and over the the past seventy years, it's it's grown to be a an international entity. Um, year on year, just the, the 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 sales expand. I think I think the fascinating thing is that it, it it's it's beginning to reach into the most unlikely territory. Uh, so people tend to associate Banner of Truth with card carrying reform churches, 
Um, but we found over over the past, I guess, five or ten years, especially, um, that there's a a growing number of of charismatic slash Pentecostal churches that are buying our books like Topsy. Um, and right. and I, I think the I think the reason for that is that the folk from that background are, are very strong on, on Christian experience. Um, but if you're going to have an experience that's real, it needs to have a, a theological foundation that's strong. And and the Puritans, you know, they were experiential. Um, Calvinists, you know, that, that truth was not just for the head, it was for the heart yeah. and it was to be lived out in all of life um, so, so that's the banner of truth um, and yeah. it's, it's just been a, an honour to serve with them in, in some small capacity um, And of course we have a conference as well Mark don't we? We have a I conference mean, yeah. with Banner of Truth Yeah, yeah that, that, that's the other thing that developed fairly early on early 1960s they, 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 they had their first conference um, really to be a, a gathering point for reformed-minded ministries, ministers, um, who were fairly thin on the ground at that time. But they again, it was such a blessing um, to the men who came. And, you know, it wasn't promoted per se, just word of mouth brought more and more yeah. people in year after year. Um, you know, tried to get some, some pretty well-known speakers to come in. You know, John Murray spoke for us. Lloyd Jones spoke for us. Um, but that But that just became a... A ministry that that again has not only been a blessing in the UK, but it's spread around the world um, in yeah. different places as well. Yeah, amazing, amazing. And tell us about Ligonier, Mark. Yeah, Ligonier is it's about fifty years old, um, and and it started in Western Pennsylvania in a, a little study centre. Um, uh, R. C. Sproul, who, whose name is is fairly well known these days, he started out as someone who was relatively unknown, but he he just had a passion. Um, for for teaching the next generation, um, you're not just through good preaching in in a church context, but rather you're taking people away for a retreat. And there was a retreat center in a uh, a small town, but that was called Ligonier. Uh, so that's where the the Ligonier came from, in the Ligonier uh, title for the organisation. Uh, it outgrew that um, fairly quickly with with young people coming from all over the US to to sit in for weekends and week long study seminars, um, and it eventually relocated to to Florida where it's been ever since. Um, uh, yeah, you, you know, one of the great thing about anything that's done in America is that it's it's done with incredible investment of thought, um, effort, and planning and and investment. Um, and, and it's under God. It is, it's, it's, the work has prospered, and it's a global yeah. ministry. Um, and, it, and it's again, it, it provides um, it provides conferences um, which are are well attended. Um, they provide other platforms by which they provide reform teaching. They do reform cruises. Sounds a bit oxymoronic. I can't imagine John Calvin on a reform cruise, but um, <laughs> it's a, it's a blessing for those who, who go. Um, and you know their literature minister ministry, their their online ministry, and their publishing ministry is just becoming a global phenomenon. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. What's your greatest memory of RC Sproul? Yeah, I, I, I never met him in person, um, but uh, the opportunities I've had to listen to him online. Uh, it, 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 I think my greatest memory is that no matter what he. What he does, he does with a, an infection, infectious passion. Yeah. You know, there's, there's nothing um, cold and clinical. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, you know, I, I think the the reform faith too often has been handled in a in a, a cold and clinical way. It's a matter of doctrinal precision and accuracy. Um, but but you know, R.C. Sproul lived out the fact that that truth is for living, um, yeah. not simply for debating. It's something that leaves its stamp across our life. And your Paul in, in Romans six seventeen talks about us about us being um, how the, the imprint of truth is visible on our lives, yeah. uh, that form of doctrine to which we have been committed. Yeah, and that for me has been a, ever since student days when I first I first puzzled over that verse and began to realize what it meant. Um, you know that the imprint of Christ should be all over the lives of God's people. Yeah, yeah, so true, so true. So, Mark, take us back to the beginning. How did you become a Christian? Uh, I was thinking of that as a, as a, you flagged up that question. It, it was it was a, as a consequence of a game of cricket, if that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was 
I was 10 years, 10 years of age, um, brought up in a Christian home. My dad was a Anglican rector. Um, so you know, being exposed to the gospel from the earliest age, uh, but your dad would regularly bring um, well-known speakers across from, from the mainland, from England, to speak in, in the little parish where, we, where he was. And there was one um, one Church of England canon, that's, that's a, a level of the hierarchy within the, the C of E structure, uh, who was just a great evangelist. He'd served in South America, he had a passion for the gospel, um, he often advertised his evangelistic events as come and be fired by a cannon. Um, so he came and stayed with us for a week. Uh, and, and you know, he, he took regular time to go out into the garden and play cricket with me. Um, and and you know, he always let me win. Um, and, and he showed me how to do it better. And I just thought as a 10-year-old, you know, here's, here's a, a grown-up, here's an adult, and he has, he's got time for, for me as a 10-year-old. Yeah, you know, so he came back a, a year later, and uh, you know we we just sort of picked up from where we left off in conversation. I was was at the tail end of being ten at that stage, um, and and he said one afternoon, "Yeah, let's sit down and just chat," and and he began to talk about the faith, and and he said, "You you obviously know the gospel because you've been brought up with it, um, but what have you, what have you done with the gospel?" And I, I, to be honest, I never really thought of it like that. It was I thought it was a matter of just knowing the facts, the details. And and, and he just he, he didn't pressurize me, but he just he said, you, you think about it. There's an invitation in the gospel. There's a call for us to actually put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to to receive this gift of salvation. And um, and I did that that afternoon. You know, I, I, as a as a ten-year-old, I said, "Lord, you know, I, I know I'm a sinner, um, and, and please, please come and, and rescue me, um, be my savior." Um, mm. and that was the turning point in terms of the outworking of new life. Yeah, yeah, brilliant, brilliant. When did you first feel called into the ministry, and, and tell us what happened next? Yeah, well, I, so I, I came to faith in February 1970, age ten. So I January. 1970, age 10. And six months later, I was sent off to boarding school. Um, and, uh, and and it was a pretty pretty hard environment. So I suddenly found myself the only Christian um, in, in my year group, as far as I knew. Uh, and I was in a dorm of 10 other guys who were anything but Christian. In my naivete, I thought, you know, what are Christians supposed to do? You're supposed to read and pray. So, you know, there, before I went to bed each night, I would read my Bible and kneel down and pray at the bedside, you know, to, to the ridicule of those around me. Um, and, and for the first two years, I didn't have any Christian friends, per se. Um, but in my second year, uh, three of my best friends became Christians, and, and we, we started meeting together for prayer and, and just to read the Bible together. Long story short, that, that group of four of us within the space of three years between a group became a group of 50 um, and and we were the ones that were doing the leading of the Bible study. So I gave my first talk at the age of 14. I uh, spoke right. from closing verses of Acts 17. Um, and, and, you know, to my shock and horror, four little guys came to me afterwards saying, okay, how do we become Christians? Um, and I effectively said, I need to go and phone a friend. And I'll, <laughs> I'll get back and tell you. Um, so I just, I, just, I just find myself from that point onwards um, having opportunities to lead Bible studies, to give talks, to get involved in outreach. Um, and then one February afternoon, um, you know, so Saturday was the day you got let out of boarding school um, for free time with family. Uh, family members came up to take me out. We were walking along the beach on the north coast of Ireland, and we were discussing what are you going to do with your life? You're 15, you've got O-levels coming up. What happens next? What's the goal? And the only thought that kept coming back was, you know, I want to be a minister. I want to preach the gospel. Um, right, yeah. that, was, that was the first inkling of it. And then it, it just, with various stages along the way, that, that sense of calling was confirmed and, and led to being sent to train. Yeah, oh, so good. So good. We, we mentioned Banner of Truth a few moments ago. And of course, your new book is published uh, with Banner. There's an interesting backstory, though, isn't there, to how the world is not my home came to be. Tell us all about that, Mark. Yeah, well, they, 
the, the, the backstory that the the short version of the backstory that I gave in the uh, in the intro, intro to the, the book um, just said that the, the articles or the, the the chapters of this book had a, a previous life in the form of of um, uh, articles I wrote for a blog that I ran for that I've been involved in for many years. It's called the the, the, the blog's called Place for Truth, but my page on the blog is is called or my column is called Resident Aliens. Um, and and it, 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 it was it was there for for multiple reasons. I think um, you know, the New Testament, especially the latter part of the New Testament, makes it very clear that this this world is only a temporary residence for us as Christians. That that our everlasting home is somewhere else. Uh, I, I think in practical terms, because I've just, because I've moved around so much in life. I've moved more times than I care to remember uh, with my family growing up and now through the yeah. different countries I've served. Uh, remember first time that I was went went to, went to America first time in nine, in 1981 um, to train for the ministry in Westminster Seminary. We got all my immigration paperwork done. Came through immigration in JFK in New York looked at what was given to me and stamped in my passport was resident alien. Yeah. And, and I sort of thought, that's an insult. And then I thought, no, it's actually true. Uh, no matter where we are in this world, that's what our passport is stamped with. We are, we are resident aliens. Our citizenship is in heaven. Um, and and you know, I was of that generation where you know, that African-American song that was was widely used in the 60s and 70s, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through that was sung in every youth group, and and it, it just resonated with me that um, you know, here we have no abiding place. We're looking for a city with foundations. Yeah. Um, so that so, you know, so that's been that. That was the real backstory. That has just yeah. been a, it just been deeply ingrained in my heart that we are we are here for a season, um, but we'll be there forever, and that's the place that matters. Yeah, and your book's so timely. More and more. I'm getting involved in conversations where people are just increased Christians are increasingly feeling like they don't recognize this world that we live in and it is feeling less and less like home. And yeah. So anyway, as creatures, we haven't always been homeless. If we take us right back to the beginning and to a point where things went wrong for mankind, Buck. Yeah. One of of the great things that came home to me in the years I spent in Westminster Seminary was that their appreciation of, of what sometimes called biblical theology uh, or else it's called redemptive history, um, and and it's it, it it's really recognizing that there's an unfolding plot line to redemption that begins in Genesis one and culminates in Revelation twenty two, um, and and the Bible walks us through um, how what God planned in eternity is worked out in space and time and history, um, and of course you, you know Genesis one and two begin in perfection. You know we're we're in a garden, this paradise. Um, but what makes it paradise isn't the the beauty of the surroundings and the perfection of the experience of life. It's because God is there, God is in the midst, um, and there's there's every reason to to believe that, that that it was the it was the the practice of Adam and Eve at the end of every day to walk with God in the garden and yeah. enjoy fellowship with Him, communion with Him, and that's that's what. That was the icing on the cake for paradise. This this in, incredible communion between preacher and creator. Um, of course, uh, that ended. Uh, that that joy ended the moment that Adam chose to disobey the very simple command that God had given. Only one restriction placed upon him: um, enjoy everything, but of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, because the day you do that you'll die. Um, and, and and Adam. Thought he knew better than God, um, and and he believed the lie of the serpent. But the very instant of his disobedience, he sensed something had gone fundamentally wrong with him. Uh, I think I said in a a talk somewhere else one time that in, in that very moment, the spiritual umbilical cord that joined him to his Maker and to his God was severed, yeah. and suddenly yeah. he felt cut off. And and his re- response was to to desperately reach for. A, a quick fix that that he provided for himself. You know, the other fig leaves that were sewn together to cover his not just his his physical naked, nakedness, but his spiritual nakedness before God. Um, and and you know that was a disaster, and it didn't work, and he hid. But God found him, and God God not only confronted him, but God also 
in, in pronouncing words of judgment, provided a promise of redemption and said that this, the seed of the woman would one day come to crush the head of the serpent. Um, and that, that's, the, that's what unfolds throughout the rest of Scripture. I think it was Sinclair Ferguson paraphrasing um, somebody else said, it's as though Genesis 3.15 is, it's as though the rest of the Bible is a footnote to Genesis 3.15. That's the way you put it. Um, and, and, and so just the whole idea of tracing that out through Scripture became a passion for me. Um because preacher far too often preachers take texts and passages and preach them out of context, you know. So they, they just sort of lift them artificially into our present situation and fail to to explore what do they mean in the original setting? How does this help us understand the progress of redemption, leading us ultimately to Christ? So, so no matter where you go in the Bible, no matter where you start. Um, if you're doing your job properly, you'll you'll always reach the same destination, and that's the Lord yeah. Jesus. Yeah, one of the things I love about your book, I think there's 30 chapters, if I'm right in, in saying that, Mark. They they're, they're quite short, so that you can just you know you can binge read it if you wanted to within a day, can't you? But or you could choose to go through it, you know, one chapter at a time each morning and and, and go through it in a month. One of the, the early chapters is you then take us to the historic t- uh, storyline uh, in the fiasco of Babel. If we're not careful, we can miss so many important things in that, can't we? Tell us about that, Mark. Yeah, I think for, for most Christians, that their their memory or their, or their default um, view on Babel is what they learned in Sunday school. It's one of those dramatic stories that kind of sticks in your mind, and you've got this this image of building a tower of of divine intervention of confusion and chaos and people being scattered to the four points of the compass. And, and you see it as, as an incident, but you fail to read how the incident is is actually prefaced for us. Um, that, that Moses in, in, in the Genesis record makes it clear they did this to make a name for themselves, that they, they, to make them themselves to build a reputation for themselves. And, and the essence of that is to make themselves the center of the universe. And, and they, you know, they, the figurative building of this high tower was to reach up to heaven and to be a challenge to the throne of heaven. Um, and and you know, God looks down and, and laughs at it because they, these are insignificant creatures. And a, and a mere word from him uh, brings their, their best laid plans to nothing. Um, so, so really, what's happening there is is not just um, the collapse of a building project, but it's actually the it's the beginnings of the disintegration of the human race. Yeah. That, that, that up until that point, there had been e- even within fallen humanity that there had been a, a degree of unity and cooperation, albeit in a, in a conspiracy against God uh, to disobey Him. Um, th- this was a foretaste of where that would lead. It wouldn't lead simply to ultimate judgment, but it would lead to the immediate retribution, a foretaste of judgment um, in in the damage that our sin inflicts upon ourselves and upon our relationships. Yeah. So so that becomes the paradigm for the wrecked and ruined humanity that we're part of. You know, there's yeah. there's friction, there's chaos, there's war, there's there's breakdown um, in in even the the most intimate relationships. And all of that is simply the outworking of of what happened in in the garden, but was demonstrated so graphically at at Babel. Yeah, yeah, it's really helpful. When Abraham was promised the land of Canaan, he was already comfortably set up in Ur of the Chaldeans, wasn't he? Packing up and leaving would have been a big test of his faith. Tell us about that, Mark. Yeah, I think I think it's a big test of anybody's faith to be told to pack up and leave and move somewhere else regardless of what age you're living in. I think in the ancient world, um, where family the, where family was such an important focus and you stayed with your family, you didn't walk away from your family. So for, for him to walk away from his, his clan, his tribal community, um, not knowing where he was going is what Genesis says, um, is really quite a, a remarkable thing. Um, yeah, he was prosperous, he was respected. Um, he was a man who, who was highly regarded in, in his own community, and, and to walk out into the, the dark unknown um, on, purely on the basis of God said go. Yeah. Um, and, and God 
Abraham may well have prayed. Could, um, Lord, could you perhaps tell me which direction or where it's going to lead? Um, you know, God didn't give precise information at that point. He did say he would bring him to a, a place of promise, a place that would be um, a home for him and his descendants. Um, but it was purely on the basis of God's word that he went, um, which is monumental in terms of personal experience for him. But it's actually paradigmatic for all of us mm-hmm. in terms of God doesn't, God rarely lets us know what lies ahead. Yeah. Um, but he says, trust me as I lead you. Yeah, and and, and you may well find that I lead you down paths that you would never choose for yourself but I'm with you and I'll I'll be working on my purpose through that yeah so true so true foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head jesus here is talking about the the three years of ministry and before that for 30 years he lived a very humble existence didn't he when you consider all the prosperity um gospel preachers and what they promise how does this make you feel mark i i, I think they're um preaching a very attractive lie um because they they haven't they haven't reckoned with um, the realities of this world in its present state. Haven't reckoned with the realities that um, God hasn't promised to to lift us out of the the awfulness of this world, um, and they haven't reckoned with the fact that the true riches that God speaks about, uh, which they gravitate towards, the, the true riches are, are not actually necessarily physical prosperity. But actually, the, the 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 treasures that are laid up for us in heaven, where moth and rust do not corrupt, where thieves don't break through and steal. I, yeah, I think I was very struck. I've, I've been struck myself personally in, in the years in, in traveling to different parts of the world. Um, but struck years ago by listening to Derek Thomas after he came back from his first overseas trip um, to minister. He went to Pakistan. They came back really shell-shocked in many ways, um, saying he had never encountered such poverty anywhere in all his life. You know, the, the church that um, he was speaking for that week uh, was was located literally above an open sewer. So the stench that rose uh, through the service was just abominable. Um, yeah. But the, the extreme poverty that these Christians were, were living in was something he just he couldn't have imagined. But he said, "What struck me was I've never, I've never met a happier group of Christians anywhere in my life." Um, and and I'd said that their their joy emanated from something far greater than what they happen to possess. Yeah, I think it, it, it's true, especially in in the Western world. We, we've allowed ourselves to become defined by what we own rather than what we are. Um, and of course, the tragic thing about what we own is. Um, you know, the novelty wears off very quickly. You, you, know, you go out and buy the latest gadget, you know, and by next week it's it's ancient so history. True. Yeah, so true. And of course, those that sell the false prosperity gospel don't have a category for trials either, do they? What purposes do trials and hard times have in a believer's life to help wean us off from loving this world too much? Oh, um, I was been struck by First and Second Peter. Um, that was one of those letters written to the the church towards the end of the New Testament era, but in, in, a, in a very in very distressing circumstances. You know, so there had been um, growing levels of persecution, um, especially back in in uh, in Judea and around Jerusalem. Um, and, and professing Christians have been have been driven from their homes and their homeland, and and basically Peter's writing to the new Christian diaspora, you know, in, in Old Testament terms, there's been a, a Jewish diaspora um, through the Assyrian deportation and through the Babylonian exile, um, but now there was a there was a Christian diaspora, um, and and they, the the people of God have been scattered, which had been a you know. A dreadful thing. You know, they had to leave home and family. They had to leave their occupations. They had to leave their their familiar surroundings. You know, and, and, and it meant extreme fear and anxiety. And 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 and, and Peter and, and also James um, speak about not being surprised by the afflictions that you go through. 
mm-hmm. uh, because mm-hmm. we've been forewarned about these. So Jesus says, take up your cross and follow after me. Uh, Peter, Peter uses the example of, of a refiner's fire. You know, so, so in order to get um, you know, pure gold or silver out of the, the ore from which they are uh, derived, you know, they, the, the ore has to be put through the furnace uh, and, and, and Peter simply says, you know, we as believers are being put through the furnace of affliction to burn off the dross of our impurity um, and to to wean us off our instinct to rely upon ourselves and our own wisdom um, and instead to cast ourselves upon the Lord and trust mm-hmm. him for his promise. Um, and and it, it's, it's, it, it's often... It's often only as you go through those those times that you never would choose for yourself that you actually discover there are there are blessings in those sufferings that that this world could could never provide, but God provides in this unusual way. Yeah, yeah. How comfortable should Christians seek to be in this world in terms of application? Where's the line in the sand, Mark? I think it's uh, uh, there's. Several litmus tests. You know, one of my most recent favourite ones. You know, Singer Ferguson gives these wonderful aphorisms that you often often are not original to him, but he gets them from somewhere else. And it's an interview <laughs> question. Apparently, that's put in in um, many interview situations where where the interviewee will be asked um, when you've got when you've got nothing to think about. What do you think about? What's the first thing that pops into your mind? And that will often be a test of where our heart lies, of what we gravitate to instinctively. And and if we perform that test upon ourselves and we find that our instincts too often go to the things of this world, then we should be thinking again about where our heart is set. Um, uh, you know, and again, you know, that, that statement by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, do not set your hearts upon things below uh, because things below are passing away, but set your hearts on things above, which are forever. Yeah. Um, and, and and I think um, I, I think one of one of the functions of suffering, no matter what shape or form it comes in, is it actually spo- exposes the emptiness of the props that we lean on in this world. I, I, you'll never forget my you know, my first opportunity to serve um, overseas. For a, a short-term teaching event, was was going out to to Cyprus to to teach a group of, of Arabs there uh, from a from a or Christians from an, an Arabic background, and I, I was my my co-teacher for that week was a, an older pastor from America that I had known while I was in America, and we were knew each other quite well. But in the meantime, he'd been diagnosed with terminal cancer. Um, it stopped all treatment. His physician said, "Yeah, you can go to Cyprus and do this course. Um, it, it, it might be a, an uplift for you." And, and I, I, you know, I, I didn't know what to say to this man in terms of, you know, "How are you coping with this this terminal Ill- illness that you're living with?" And he said, "You know, I wake up every morning and I thank God. I thank God every day for another day of life." Yeah. And he said, "I thank God because this." This has taught me that actually my my meaning and purpose, my identity in life, doesn't come from the fact that I'm a res- I've been a respected minister, a respected minister in several congregations, had a respected position in my denomination, the fact that I had a, a great family, um, all the things, and I, you know, I've been blessed with with relatively prosperous existence. So suddenly, all of that meant nothing, and and the cancer made me think the only thing that matters is that I have a saviour and that he will never let me go and that he will bring me home to heaven. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Many Christians talk about this felt tension, often described as the already but not yet component of the Christian life. Tell us about that, Mark. Oh, it was, it was um, Professor Dick Gaffin. Um, he was a professor of New Testament theology whenever I was in Westminster. Uh, he was a an ardent fan of of Gehardus Voss, um, and uh, you know his lectures were just steeped with bossy and redemptive history. And 
you know, the, the language of already but not yet, you know, comes very much from from Voss's handling of the the progress of redemption in Scripture, and, it, and it's a realization that that whenever we become uh, a Christian, um, we have a foretaste of the life to come. Um, eternal life is the beginnings of the life of the future experienced in the present. Um, so, so we have tasted of the good things that are to come, but we've not yet begun to experience the fullness of those things. Um, so that you know, the Bible gives us tantalizing glimpses of where it's all going to lead, what it's all going to be like, um, and and. Yeah, there's that. There's that. The more we discover, the more we discover that. The more we yearn for heaven. The more we long for what's ahead. Uh, and 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 it's but the fact that our, our appetite has been whetted makes us all the more eager. Um, and in, in the high points of Christian experience, whether it be individually or collectively, um, you know, you know how often have you been at a conference or been in a service? And and at the end of the service, there's just this stillness, and people are whispering, "Yeah, oh, it was a foretaste of heaven." Yeah, yeah. And, it, and, it, and it just whets your appetite for what really matters and that place that will never end. Yeah, so true. Had one on Sunday. Basil Howlett was at our church in Eastbourne, and and we had exactly that. Everyone afterwards was just saying exactly that, Mark. And and reading your book last week as well. You know, it was quite the week. <laughs> Can't wait to go. Yeah. What does a healthy fear of the Lord look like? Uh, I, I think uh, Hebrews Hebrews chapter twelve talks about um, the awesomeness of God. Um, you're referring first of all to to, to the Mount, Mount Sinai, where where the God manifests His presence in a in a terrifying way. Uh, you know, our God is a consuming fire. Uh, he says, um, and and that's important to get that. I, I think I think we we don't begin to appreciate. The magnitude of God's love and grace, until we appreciate the magnitude of His holiness and justice, um, that that we do not treat God lightly or carelessly. Uh, but whenever we have that that reverence and awe that Hebrews speaks about as we approach the Lord, then it actually it actually fills us with a, a deeper sense of mm. the wonder of His love and grace. So that yeah. such a God should who is the judge of all the earth, should not only allow us to call him Father, but address him in the most intimate expression of Abba, Father. I, I think it's one of my gripes um, that, that too much of contemporary worship, and I'm not at all against the, the, the singing of new hymns and songs and the, the ongoing composition of new hymns and songs, but too often they're me-centered, um, yeah. they're yeah. experience-focused, um, they're sentimental. Um, that that you know, very quickly begins to wear thin. But uh, you know, the, the the great thing about the best of the older hymns and the best of the newer hymns that they are they are driven by an overwhelming sense of the the glory and the majesty of God, yeah. um, which makes us feel in an overwhelming way just how much we're loved by God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. One of the things that you highlight in the book is that as Christians, we're not supposed to go it alone. By design, uh, we're to be connected to a local body of believers in the church. Tell us why this is so important, Mark. Because, um, as Ian Hamill has said repeatedly, our generation has been has been um, infected by the curse of post-enlightenment individualism. Um, you know, they... they you know, the, the, the curse of, of, of enlightenment philosophy, you know, it was called the Age of Enlightenment. It was actually the beginning of the New Dark Ages. It, it, it quietly but deliberately put, shifted God to the sidelines. Um, and, and rather than having the, the, the concept of God at the center of our understanding of who and what we are and why we're here. Um, and, and the effect of that was to shift the focus to the individual. Um, you know, that, that it's... Uh, Descartes, cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. Um, that it's it's all about me, what I make of things. Yeah, but but that that was that was the beginning. It was it was kind of under control um, in the the early stages, but with the the popularization of a Darwinian concept of evolution again, it, it, it 
increase the sense that we are the, the captains of our soul, the masters of our destiny. Um, and, and, it, and it came of age. I think it started to come of age in the 1960s. And, and now we're, I think now in our generation, we're witnessing the, the consequences of um, individualism running amok. See it in society at large. It's, it's all about me and my rights and nothing about my fellow human beings and my responsibility to them. We see it in the church um, that that being a Christian is is a matter of my own personal choice and uh, and what I choose what, what I want to do with that. Um, but but we, you, you, but but that's oxymoronic because because no, you know John Donne is quite right when he says no no person is an island. Um, yeah. you, we're not self generating. We're not self sustaining. We, we depend upon our parents to come into, into existence. We uh, depend upon our families, our communities. You know that's what sustains us. Now, if that's true generally, then it's supremely true within redeemed humanity, which is the church. Uh, we are we are we are the family of the redeemed, and you know everything that the Bible, not just in the New Testament, but in its um, preview in the Old Testament, teaches us about mutual responsibility, mutual care, mutual encouragement, mutual rebuke. Um, yeah. We're to grow together, um, and, and again, I think that's that's significant because the image of God is not something private and personal. It's clear from Genesis uh, Genesis one that that just as God is a plurality, one God of three persons, so humanity is a plurality, um, one humanness, but manifests in two sexes, male and female, um, equally image of God, but corporately image of God. And, and and I think we've just lost sight of the the importance of being part of the body of Christ and the privileges it entails, the blessing it brings, but also the discipline that entails of commitment, of contribution. Um, and, and as an older generation used to say, we're saved in order to serve. What can I give? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so true. We live at a time where there seems to be a lot of people that care about the planet and the environment. As Christians, how should we view our responsibility to look after the world? Um, I, I think we've 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 lost the plot on that one. Um, we've we, you know, we've abandoned our responsibility to the Green Party and their acolytes. Um, you know, who are pursuing this in a crazy fashion. You know, right back in, you know, I, I just I'm not sure whether it's this month or next month that's coming out, but I've just written a an editorial for the Banner of Truth magazine entitled Custodians of Creation, um, that, that, that God's people, of all people, um, should uh, embrace the green agenda in, in, a, in a sane way. You know, I think there's an insane way in which there's a, a green agenda out there, but in a sane way, we are the guardians of, of the galaxy, not just the planet, um, because God has put us in charge of, um, of planet Earth and his creation. And we are to do all in our power to to maximise its product productivity. Um, I, I think the curse of fallen humanity is is a, a, a rapacious exploitation of Earth's resources without any any thought of what what's this leaving for the next generation. Um, and and, and it, you know, it's become a scorched earth policy, and 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 we are failing our children and our grandchildren if we simply try to get what we can out of it without any sense of conservation and continuation of, of what God has entrusted to our care. Yeah. Yeah. I'll probably get shot. I'm for sure one that. of the country. So, so he marks it again. I'll probably get shot for saying that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure one of the contributing factors of some Christians finding it tricky to view heaven as their home is the fact that Greek mythology and Hollywood have distorted what it's going to be like. Tell us about that, Mark. Yeah, we have, yeah, I've often, think, often thought that the, the Jehovah's Witnesses have stolen, stolen a march on us. Whenever the, the JWs come knocking on your door, where they thrust a copy of the Watchtower into your hand and say, yeah, we believe that heaven is a renovated earth and not just an ethereal place above. And I, and I say, you're absolutely right. Yeah. But if you read the rest of the Bible, you'll find actually what it means and how you get there. And it's not the way that you're suggesting. I, I think it's, it's one of the greatest things. I just, I just love it. You know, Isaiah 61 gives you the preview of this reconstituted world and universe. Um, you get glimpses of it um, in, in Jesus and the, 
uh, his teaching about the future. But but it, it, you know it, it, it explodes in the last two two chapters of the Bible, Revelation twenty one and twenty two. Uh, you know they, they yeah, I've got a sermon that I've preached from Revelation twenty one that I've entitled a postcard from heaven. Uh, that this this is a, a picture of um, of of what what we're going to. Um, and don't you want to be here? Um, and, and it is, uh, you know, you, you, as you rightly say, we, we've we've got this sort of um, ethereal and 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 um, I, I think in many ways unattractive image of heaven of floating around in white robes with wings with harps, and and it's just so beyond our, con- our, our, our conception that you think, I'm not sure I want to spend forever doing that. Yeah. Uh, but then you see, no, actually, this is, this is the new heavens, the new earth, the home of righteousness. This is a world gone wrong that's been purified by fire and it's been perfected, refined and purified to be exact. Not, not simply what God intended from the beginning, uh, because it's not just um, the Garden of Eden, Rita Vivas, it's actually um, the Garden of Eden, the world, the universe, as it would have become if Adam had never sinned, if Adam was on probation and at some unspecified point in time, after perfect obedience, not only would he have been perfected in holiness forever, but the entire cosmos would have been perfected in what God intended it to be forever. So that, you know, the, the, I think the most distinguishing thing from what you see in in um, the glimpses of heaven in those two, last two chapters of the Bible uh, is is that they are uh, um, they are un, they are unassailable. Uh, you know, there, there, there was a, there was always a question mark hanging over Eden. What was Adam going to do with the with the, with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Um, would would Satan have his way with his lies? Um, but Satan will be banished from the new heavens and the new earth. Um, and, and there will be no possibility of temptation and sin in the new heaven and yeah. the new world. It'll be ours forever. Yeah. The sermon that you preached, a postcard from heaven, Did you do you remember if it was recorded? Um, it probably was, and maybe in the Grove Chapel archive, possibly. Okay. Well, I'll try and find that, and if I can find it anywhere, I'll make sure that it's posted in uh, the description below. So make sure that you check that out. It sounds like that's definitely one that we all want to go and find. Mark, there are many people today that if asked if they're going to go to heaven, they would say yes, but then would deny Jesus as Lord and Saviour. What would you want to say to that person? I say the heart of heaven is spending eternity with Jesus. So if you don't want to spend eter- if you don't want to spend your life with Jesus on earth, I don't think you're going to want to spend eternity with him in heaven. Yeah. 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 Uh, and of course, yeah. If, yeah. if they don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, they're not going there anyway as well, right, Mark? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Mark, one of the many blessings that the Lord has given us as we travel through the world is Christian fellowship, friendship with other believers. Who are some of the people that have had the biggest impact on your walk as a believer? Uh, there, there, there have been a, a wonderful array of them. Um, you know, that, that that man who who led me to Christ. You know, he was an older man, but he you know he befriended a ten year old, and, and we kept on t- in touch until he died, um, and that was lovely. Uh, at the age of sixteen, um, I I accidentally met Sinclair Ferguson. Um, you know, I was. I was brought along to a supper evening just because my father was involved in a uh, the organising committee of a major convention in Ireland, and there was a, a, a supper evening at which Sinclair Ferguson was going to be present because he was a speaker, and I was kind of hiding in the corner amongst all these, you know, awesome ministers, and I was just minding my own business, and and, and Sinclair rambled over to me, had a conversation with me. Uh, and I thought that was nice that he, that he engaged with a, a teenager and, and parked it as a memory. Every year for the next, I think, four or five years, our paths just crossed, not not, not in a, an orchestrated way, they just happened to, to cross um, once a year for the next five years and, and um, the friendship grew. He, he, would always, he would always remember where we left off, pick up, carry on. 
and yeah, that 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 that's been a precious friendship. Um, yeah. Another friendship began in another unusual way. Um, you know, I never I'd heard of Ian Hamilton, but never met him before. Uh, but he was down in London um, with some staying with a family from Girl Chapel. He went down with appendicitis. Um, ended up having to delay his return to to Scotland. Uh, but had booked a flight to get back up to Scotland, but needed somebody to get, give him a lift to to Heathrow. And as I said, I, I'd never spoken to him before. So I said, I'll, I'll give him a lift. Um, so it was the middle of November. I thought Heathrow and back have done that plenty of times. Um, you know, grabbed a, a summer jacket, rushed out, got him in the car, took him to Heathrow, and they said, you can't fly because you've had appendicitis. And he, he said, um, I, then he said, I'll, I'll just get the train. I said, Ian, there's no way you're going to get the train. We're, we're nearly at the M25. I'll drive you up to Scotland. Um, so, so we had this eight-hour drive with him groaning in the after pains of appendicitis. Um, but a friendship was formed in those eight hours on the way from London to New Mills. And we've been bosom buddies ever since. You know, we, we speak uh regularly several times a week uh so he's been a, a dear friend my best yeah. friend fiona my wife you know she's been uh she's been described by several of my friends as my best ad- my, my best asset um she's sane um she keeps me in in my place and on my feet and she keeps me going um so yeah yeah lovely so good Mark, we're about to take a very quick break and then we're going to come back and answer the free signature bar questions. I hope you're ready. So, Mark, as you know, every single guest that comes onto the bar gets asked these three very important questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. Question one. What kind of music do you listen to? You know, I, I've got incredibly eclectic tastes in music. Um, so, you know, uh, everything from classic rock um, from the 60s um, right through to uh, avant-garde contemporary music um, in the present. Uh, you know, I've got a... I've got a uh, a music library with some like 1800 um, individual tracks um, that I keep on, on shuffle on my devices. Um, and, and, and I just, you know, I think if you, if you ask me for my favorite, um, it would be Celtic rock. Um, back in the, the 1970s, there was a kind of crossover from traditional Irish folk music to uh, a Celtic rock genre. Uh, and, and it was just, yeah, just, it was, something that just caught my heartstrings and I, I just have loved it ever since. Um, yeah. And enjoy female vocalists um, from all parts of the world. I've just had a fascination with, with the, uh, you, you, the different ranges of uh, styles of music that they cover. Um, again, preference would be for Irish female vocalists, but yeah, and, and some classical. Um, enjoy contemporary classical as well, I&ID and uh, Gorecki and people like that. Um, but yeah, are you musical yourself? Can you sing or do you play the instruments? I wish I play my, I play my iPad and my iPod. <laughs> <laughs> Next signature bar question: What book or books are you currently reading? Uh, theologically, I've been working my way through Robert Lesson's Systematic Theology. Um, Bob taught me at. at uh, at Westminster when I was there, and I taught him whenever he was a member of my congregation in, in Wales. Um, so, you know, I, you know, I read through his, his tremendous systematic theology and, and hear his voice all the way through. Um, it's it's challenging. You know, he, 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 you know, he likes to push the envelope at times and, and, and sort of um, he's got a, a fascination with East, Eastern Orthodoxy, which intrigues me. But, um, uh, yeah, I've re- really enjoyed that. Um on, a, on the secular reading front, um, I've had a fondness for Robert Harris, a uh, former journalist, but he he's written a number of historical fiction-type um, novels in, in different settings. Um, but he's he's recently written, his most recent book is called Act of Oblivion. Um, it's the story of the 
um, the pursuit of uh, the regicides, the remaining regicides after the execution of King Charles, um, and you know it's it's a so it's a gripping read and it's it's um, peppered with historical facts. So I'm enjoying him. Excellent. And are you writing anything else at the moment, Mark? Oh, yeah. I've, for a long time, I've had a the guts of a, a book on worship, rediscovering the joys of worship. Um, that's been on my computer, but you know, life's been in a bit of a state of upheaval for the past two years. So it's 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 an unfinished project. Um, it, it hopefully will see the light of day at some point. Excellent, excellent. And last question: What podcasts or sermons do you listen to? You know, um, I'm not great with podcasts, though. Though I will say um, that when when I went to Sam, I, I was probably one of the first podcasters before they were actually called podcasts. Oh. Uh, in the Derek Thomas, when we were sent, when I was sent off to Westminster, he said, um, "Make it a habit of listening to two good sermons um, a day, and pick half a dozen." Um, good preachers, but each of them different. So they're not all of the same genre. So those are the days when the Sonny Walkman first came out. And you know, Westminster had a wonderful library of cassette tapes. And I used to, and I, I had a job of cleaning toilets every day for two hours. That was how, part of the way, I worked my way through Westminster. So every day I was, during those two hours, I'd be listening to Eric Alexander, Donald McLeod, um, Al Martin, uh, um, folk like that, um, and, and John Murray, even though he was dead, his tapes lived on, and Martin Lloyd Jones. So those are the kind of men I would listen to, and, and you know, subliminally, it wasn't just that you were learning what they were teaching, um, but you were by osmosis learning what made their preaching great. So mm. uh, that's my claim to fame in terms of podcasts and sermon. Yeah. Well, Mark, fantastic book. Really enjoyed reading it. Really enjoyed speaking to you over the last hour as well. But before we let you go, please take a moment to let us know your closing thoughts and also let people know how they can keep in, in uh, up to date with all the bits you're doing. Yeah, um, my my, my, you know, my passion has always been the church um, as the the body of Christ, um, and 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 you know it, it saddens me enormously that um, so many Christians today see church as a kind of optional extra as opposed to the essential um, that, that we are. If we're part of the body, then that's not just uh, in name only, it's in practice and reality. And and you just long to see people who profess to be Christians demonstrate that by joining a faithful congregation of the Lord's people and playing their part in, their, in that context. Um, Concerned also for the next generation um, that we we see our young people grow up to not only profess faith but to use their gifts in the life of faith. Um, and in terms of keeping in touch, um, yeah, I'm on Facebook and I'm on Twitter uh, um, at Rev M G Johnston at uh, on Twitter and and uh, I think the same for. Uh, for, for for Facebook, um, yeah, I've recently moved to a new church, and we just um, launched our new website as of yesterday. Um, it's groomsportepc.com, um, and, and that'll provide links and, and connections that I hope will be useful. Yeah, brilliant. Well, we'll make sure that we've got the link to the book to both social media accounts and to the new church website as well in the description below. So make sure that you check those out. Mark, thanks again for your time. Really enjoyed speaking to you today. Been a pleasure thanks very much indeed and to the bar listeners thank you again for tuning in and make sure that you hit that subscribe button so that you can get the show every single tuesday and just like today we have some top top guests coming up that you do not want to miss out on and remember to check out the bar podcast website where you can listen to Dwayne's huge archive of interviews which will keep you nice and busy until next time to laugh for now
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.